All right, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. I, I, I wouldn't expect a response. I just kind of, my mind went blank there for a second. Um, but all right, if you don't have an outline, we, I'd love for you to get one on the back table. Um, and Marilyn McGraw and Pam Cohn is grabbing a bunch, so raise your hand if you don't have one, and uh, they will bring them to you. I think you'll be helped to follow along there. Um, Rob Ward asked me at the beginning if my Facebook moratorium that I put on people on Sunday applied on Wednesday night, and the answer is yes. So um, if you have an electronic device that you're skimming along in the Bible with, it's wonderful. Just, you know, don't check Facebook. Uh, No, whatever. Do what you got to do, but the Holy Spirit is watching you. Um, All right, well, uh, let's do just a little bit. Well, actually, you know what I want to do? Before we even start, I want you to flip over to the back of your page, and in case I don't get to it or I forget, I want you to go all the way down to point number four there, helpful resources. I'm not giving this book away. It's the only one I have. It's all marked up, um, uh, but I really highly commend this to you, uh, and it is a wonderful, concise, I mean, you could read this book in less than an hour, And it is an overview of the whole Bible done by a pastor that we have great respect for, Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He started this organization called Nine Marks, which we're a part of as a church. Very, very helpful. Anyway, he wrote a book called What Does God Want of Us Anyway? A Quick Overview of the Whole Bible. I really commend this to you. And when you read this, you'll just have have a better... Um, you'll have a, just a better understanding of how the Bible fits together. And then bookmark this website in your browser and just feast on this website. It is called um, The Bible Project. The website is jointhebibleproject.com. And it is a couple seminary professors out in Oregon at a seminary called Western Seminary. And they have... Um, writ, they have produced these little six to seven minute videos. Their goal is to, the project is to produce these videos for every book in the Bible. They've probably done maybe 15 books of the Bible and also on certain themes within the Bible like law and covenant and sacrifice. They've, they've done um, probably about 10 Old Testament books. They are, it's a little six to seven minute, really well done graphically well done video, and then like a voiceover explaining the overarching message of each Bible book, and it is fantastic. I cannot commend it um, uh, highly enough to you. So bookmark jointhebibleproject.com. Those, those guys are very solid theologically. They're coming from a good, a good perspective theologically. It's just really, really well done. It's concise. It's very understandable, very clear. In fact, I consider just playing the videos for the Pentateuch tonight and just sitting down, but I've, you know, I've got to earn my keep, I guess, so we're gonna, um, you're going to have to listen to me, but, but clean up the mess that I've made at the end of the night and watch those videos. Okay, with that, the Dever book is usually in the resource room. I don't know if we have any copies. This goes pretty fast. Yeah, I don't think we have any, um, and I'd give you this one, but it's, it's got, you know, kid stains on it and coffee and all that kind of stuff. So um, very, very helpful book. Okay, let's just review where we... So last week, we're we're walking through the whole Old Testament. Today, we're going to just settle down on the first five books of the Old Testament and walk through those real quickly. But just by way of review, I know we did this last week. 
Uh, but it, it, you know, when things are new, it's helpful to hear them. Remember, we have 17, 5, and 17. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. And a good way to break them down is 17 historical books, 5 wisdom books, and then 17 prophet or prophetical books. Okay, And so remember we talked about how the Bible begins in Genesis, and then it, the whole timeline of the book of the of the whole Old Testament is contained in the first seventeen books of the Bible. So Genesis through uh, through Esther, right? Is those are the first seventeen books, and that's the history. So if you are looking at the Old Testament and you feel like it's so huge and very difficult, and like how do I, you know, I just want to read the story. If you read the first 17 books of the Bible, they are mostly chronological, and that contains the whole story of the Old Testament, right? So that's 17. Now, we're going to look today at the first five books of the, um, of the uh, Old Testament called the Pentateuch, which is just a word that means f- the first five books. Um, but remember that these 17 books cover the whole history The wisdom books, which are Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, are books about human experience during these 17 books. So Psalms is a a hymn book, basically, of God's people. Proverbs, these wisdom sayings. Um, Job is a one particular story about a man enduring suffering. Uh, Ecclesiastes is about the vanity of life. Song of Solomon is about a love story between a man and a woman that it becomes a picture of God's love for his bride. Those are scattered kind of throughout, but primarily here towards the end. And then remember the prophets, the 17 prophets are all raised up by God, speaking back into uh, Israel's history during, these, during this 17 book long jaunt through the history of Israel. And primarily the prophets are kind of right here towards the end, towards the time of like First and Second Kings through Esther. And remember, I think I might have lost you guys at this. I was a little, kind of got a little rushed, but we talked about how there's prophets that are pre-exile. Remember, they're warning God's people, don't disobey God. Of course, they do disobey God. And then there's prophets that are in the exile, like carried away to Babylon, Daniel and Ezekiel, these are prophets that God raised up that were to speak and comfort and really lament about the state of God's people while they were in exile in Babylon. And so those are the exile prophets. And remember, there were post-exile prophets. When God's people were able to go back to the land and rebuild, they were, they were like, I kind of like to think of them as the football coaches of the prophets. They were like, you know, come on, keep working. <laughs> don't, don't, don't slack off. You know, water breaks over. Let's go. Start building the temple again. So you got pre-exile, exile, and post-exile. Okay, today we're going to center on the first five books um, of, the, uh, of the history, the Pentateuch. So with your outline there, let's, let's kind of go through. Now, I, I was about 15 feet away from him today, and our offices are across the hallway, and I started to kind of sweat and think, oh my gosh, I've bit off way more than I can chew, and I texted Robert and said, um, that, that uh, choking sound you hear right now is me biting off more than I can chew, so um, we're going to stop at 7.30, Lord willing, and just 
get as far as we can. Okay, everything begins with Genesis. I've done just a very cursory outline, um, really, really elementary outline of these books. So Genesis, you, you can think about it as being broken down into two, um, two chapters. So, I mean, I mean, two segments, 1 through 11 and 12 through 50. So, of course, the first 11 chapters, God creates everything that is and a really significant Maybe I'm just going to write down, just jot down some scriptures here that I think are really significant scriptures in some of these books, and I'll maybe read some of them. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27 um, is this mandate where God says, I have created man in my own image, and put it up there on the screen if we have it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Well, we could go on and on about that, but there's just a couple things. Let's just realize that God creates man to be the steward of his creation, to have dominion over it. Also, he creates man and women equally in his image. So any sort of sexism, any sort of uh, uh, diminishing of women in any way uh, is absolutely against God's created order, right? Because both man and woman, although they have different roles, are created to bear God's image. Then we see that uh, very quickly, early on, they fall, mankind falls, and this is significant. To understand the rest of the Bible you need to have a good understanding of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve willfully rebel against God, and they are excommunicated from his presence. So mankind is separated from God. Now, we don't understand all of the implications right then. God says, when you eat, when you disobey me, you will die. He warns them. They do disobey. They don't seem to die immediately, but certainly spiritually they die. And Paul later on in the New Testament sheds light on that for us when he writes in Romans 5 that, that when sin entered into humanity, death entered in. We are now spiritually dead. But in the midst of that horrible, sad scene in Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, in Genesis 3, we have this first glimmer of hope. So Genesis 3, verse 15 God is now speaking to the serpent. So he's speaking to Satan, and he says, I will, he's, he's cursed man, he's cursed woman. He says, woman, you'll have a tough time bearing babies. Guys, you're going to struggle with work. And then he turns his sights on the, on the enemy, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, at this point, we, like, we know what is happening here because we have the benefit of the rest of the Bible. But at the time, this who is this? He's saying there's going to be an offspring of this woman and there's going to be an offspring of this enemy. And the offspring of this woman is going to, you're going to get a little bit of him. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And that is like the first little glimmer of hope that God will crush our enemy, right? There it is right after the fall. And now the Bible starts to fill in the blanks on all that as we go, but the gospel is preached by God there in Genesis 3, verse 15. And then uh, creation continues to advance. There's, uh, the fall happens. 
Um, and remember, we went through Genesis as a church a couple years ago. People continue to get really, really wicked. Um, in fact, I was just thinking about this today. I rarely remember individual sermons. I don't remember my own individual sermons, but I remember Robert Ward's sermon on, was it, who was it, Lamech? Was it Genesis 6 that you preached on? Where Robert talked about the, really just the, the slide into debauchery of humanity. And it was a wonderful sermon about really just the state of mankind. So kudos to you, Robert. It's been a year and a half. And today, as I was thinking about this, I remembered your excellent sermon on that wicked cat, Lamech. That was really awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. And so the fall continues to happen. God judges. The flood comes. Um, God chooses. We see this rescue. Babel happens. Civilization spreads. And so that's, that's much, much of human history very likely is happening even before the flood. In Genesis, in Genesis 6. I mean, empires are rising and, 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 and being squashed and, and wiped off the face of the earth, right? And Russell Crowe was not, he wasn't there. Didn't quite happen like it went there. But anyway, lots are happening here. Genesis 12 becomes a turning point in the whole Bible, and certainly in the book of Genesis. God calls a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he begins to form, he promises Abraham something very significant. So in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, this is a super important. We'll pick up the pace a little bit, so don't think we're going to plod through every verse in Genesis. But God calls a man Abram. Now it's very significant. Abram was not in and of himself anything noteworthy or righteous. In fact, in Genesis chapter 11, Abram is wandering around, as we learn later on in Joshua, really worshiping other gods along with his father. He's far from God. But God as an act, and this becomes a pattern for God in how he establishes a people. He doesn't look for people that are doing good and then meet them halfway. God, by an act, by an act of mere sovereign grace, chooses a people for himself. And he does this with Abraham in Genesis 12. So in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, he comes to Abraham and gives him this great promise. And it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's promising Abraham a couple things. He's promising him seed or offspring. He's promising him land. He's promising him blessing be with him and have his presence with him. So Abraham is this central figure in the beginning of the Bible, and God promises to create a people through Abraham. And we're going to find out later on as we go through Genesis, and we won't take the time to do it, but we'll find out that God begins to promise offspring to Abraham, and it's linked, it starts to connect to God's promise of offspring to Eve in the Garden of Eden when they're getting excommunicated. So we're starting to see this, this, this uh, tie that God weaves all through the Old Testament of this promise of hope. And it's not a bunch of different promises. It's one great grand promise that God is making to redeem a people for himself for his glory. And it begins very early on. So then Genesis marches on. He has there's the, the patriarchs, which is the fathers, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are the son, grandson, and great-grandson of, of um, Abraham. And at the end of Genesis, God's people find themselves in Egypt, really because of their disobedience. At they find themselves in Egypt uh, at this point being really um, welcomed guests 
because of Joseph's position. We know the story of Joseph. But um, early on, we'll see it takes a left turn here in, um, in Exodus. But before we move on to Exodus, just a few notes about, about um, Genesis. A couple important themes in Genesis. Genesis is certainly about creation uh, and certainly about the fall. But also notice that in the third chapter of the book, right after the fall, is the first preaching of the gospel. We see God promising grace. So don't fall into this faulty notion that the Old Testament is about some kind of wrathful God, it's sort of mean and grumpy. And there was this guy in the early uh, church, and I think the 200s or 300s, if Logan's in here, he'll certainly correct me. But uh, Marcion, Marcion, 200. I'm getting an affirmative from uh, Professor Copley, so I'm feeling better about myself. Marcion 200s, he saw wrongly um, uh, that, that the God of the Old Testament was different from the New Testament. He wrongly perceived that, and so he just kind of wanted to cut out the whole Old Testament. He was branded a heretic by, heretic by the early church. But you see, you see the beginnings of grace, even in a God who's holy and righteous and does judge. So we see the gospel. We see God making a covenant with his people. Now, um, we, could spend a, we could spend a whole six-week block. We could spend much longer than that on just this idea of biblical covenants, okay? And God makes along the way, there's lots of different covenants. Let me just kind of give you the major people that God makes a covenant with in the Old Testament. Certainly, he makes a covenant with Adam, right, in creation. And he says, be my steward of this creation. Adam messes it up. The next person that we see God make a covenant with in the Bible is Noah, right? He makes a covenant with Noah, a, a gracious covenant to, to, uh, to, and to not destroy the earth. He makes his covenant with Noah after he judges the earth through the flood. We see really the big covenant in the Old Testament, this covenant with Abraham that he makes, right? There's a covenant he makes with Abraham. Then he makes a covenant later on with, uh, with Moses, to be with him and uphold him as he leads God's people. We're going to get to that. Then he makes a covenant with, um, with David, right? But all of these covenants, don't think of these covenants as so it's different. So they're really all kind of the same covenant that God is making to bring a redeemer, right? It's different aspects, you know, but but don't get, when you hear the word covenant, people talk about all these covenants, don't get psyched out. A covenant is just God deciding to enter into a relationship with a sinful people for the sake of saving them. An Old Testament scholar that has a definition of covenant that I think is really helpful, he says, he calls it a bond with blood sovereignly administered. And it's God initiating a relationship through sacrifice with his people. And we see this idea of covenant. And let's not miss also that in, the, in Genesis, we see God create, allow the fall. Like, let's remember, we now know, we have perspective. We know in Ephesians that God has planned redemption before the foundations of the world. Well, if you've planned to save something from a fall... That means embedded in your plan is your providence over that very fall itself, right? So before God creates, God plans, ordains, brings about. We get nervous with those words because we don't like to think of God in having any 
in a mysterious way where God is not culpable for evil at all, never responsible for sin, but yet over it. Have that category. God is not Luke Skywalker, and sin is not Darth Vader. They don't fight on the bridge. It's not like a 50-50 thing, right? Robert, I'm messing it up. You will mock me tomorrow. I'm sorry. Just give it to me now. But it's not dualism. Do you understand that? It's not this battle of evenly matched forces between good and evil. Before the foundations of the world, God deemed and planned for redemption. That's when we need, like Romans 3, shut your mouth. Every mouth is silent. Our God is in the heavens. Psalm 115, verse 3. And he does whatever he pleases. But he does it in a way, and it's, we can't, we can't, we, we kick against the goes. We have a tough time seeing how God could be involved in that and not be anything but good and righteous, right? Let's admit that's hard. Can I get a north-south on that? Okay. Okay, let's admit that's hard, but let's also reject the alternative because the alternative is just an unbiblical view of God, right? That's a much harder universe to live in that God is somehow reacting to evil, right? Okay, that's an even harder position to to defend. So anyway, um, let's keep going. So then, I don't, where where am I? Jeez, that was rabbit trail. Um, Okay, then last point there is that God has raised up a people and he has given them a purpose, right? So he's doing all of this. God is marching human history along for a purpose. All right, I spent way too much time in Genesis. Let's start flying. Exodus. All right, we're just going to split it up in two, two things here. So God's people find themselves in captivity, right, because of their rebellion. And now in Exodus, they are, um, they are in captivity. And the first 19 chapters of Exodus God raises up a deliverer named Moses who is going to set God's people free. And he does this by sending plagues right through Moses' leadership. And he literally wrestles uh, his people from Egyptian captivity from Pharaoh. God is shown in the first 19 chapters of Exodus as being sovereign over human hearts. In, in the first few chapters of Exodus, we say over and over, God commanding Pharaoh to let his people go. Just another little thing to kind of throw in the difficult thing to put together category. God's commanding Pharaoh to let his people go and then hardening his heart so he can't do the very thing he's commanded him to. Okay, God is in control. And God um, is sending plagues. Finally, we see in Exodus chapter 12, it's a wonderful chapter to read where God starts to be more clear about this sacrifice, this, this way he's going to bring redemption. And we see this beautiful, vivid picture of the gospel. God tells uh, his people who are in captivity to take a lamb and to slaughter that perfect spotless lamb and to to apply blood to the doorpost of the heart of, of the of, uh, to the doorpost of their houses and then to feast on the meat of that lamb to party basically and that when the angel of god passes over their houses he will if he sees the blood you're safe if he doesn't see the blood he will kill the firstborn of that household 
Well, of course, God's people, Israel, had the blood applied to their doorpost. Egypt's houses didn't, and so God killed all of the firstborn of Egypt, and he wrestles his people from Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh, um, he, he's, he goes mad, and God, uh, he, he, he says, okay, leave, but then he changes his mind, and he pursues God's people to the edge of the Red Sea, and Moses sticks a stake in the ground, and it is miraculous. God parts the Red Sea. We know the story of the people. What's happening here? Okay? I want you to see that this is a, we see in the Exodus, we see this beautiful picture of the way God brings salvation through the blood of a lamb, right? How he brings judgment through the blood. And then when he parts the Red Sea, it wasn't like God said, Israel, if you, like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We got a plan. If you will work on your 100-meter breaststroke, and all of you become really good swimmers, and you outswim the Egyptians, I'll meet you halfway and make a tide come, like a little undercoat to turn and get you across. No, it's not a two-handed, it's not a cooperative event. It is a one-handed sovereign rescue, right? And that becomes a picture of salvation. So God rescues his people. And then in verses 20 through 40, which is the rest of of uh, the book of Exodus, God camps his people out at Mount Sinai, right? It's this mountain where God with Moses gives his people his law. Now, why is this so, 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 so important? I want you to see this pattern. One, verse, Exodus 1 through 19, it's like, it's like gospel, right? God rescues his people, not because they were obeying any law or righteous. There was no law to obey. They were captives. And God sovereignly rescues them. And then he rescues them for the purpose of forming them into his holy people through his law, right? So God gives, God, God gives grace and then he gives command, a way to live. I want you to see a pattern here. This becomes Paul's pattern in the New Testament for his epistles. You've heard me say, you've heard all of us say when we teach that Paul has this pattern, like in um, uh, Ephesians and Colossians and just about all of his epistles, he will start with the indicative of the gospel, right? So what's indicative? An indicative is a statement of fact, something that has happened, so Colossians and Ephesians, and a lot of Paul's letters start with the first few chapters are, this is what God has done to save you. It's happened. It's happened to you. And then the second half of these epistles is, because of what God has done, now live this way. In light of this, put off the flesh and put on holiness, right? Because God has taken your dead heart and made it alive, you are now enabled to follow him and obey his command or his imperative, the indicative and the imperative. What God has done, what you must do in light of it. And we see that pattern in Exodus, what God has done, and now how you must live in light of what God has done to be his people. And why is God giving a law? Just to mess with his people, to make it rough on them? No, we're going to tie it back to what God has said here in Genesis 12, where he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. Remember, the world fell. Everything fell. And I'm going to call a people out. I'm going to call a people out of this dark place 
and I'm going to make them my people. And that's all he tells, tells Abraham. I'm going to bless everybody through you, Israel. Well, how's this going to happen? Lots of bad things are happening. Oh, my gosh, now we're in captivity. Well, God rescues them out. And now in Exodus, he's going to give them his law. And his law isn't just to mess with them. It's to help them become the holy nation that he promised they would be in Genesis 12 so that Israel would be distinct, so they would be a city set on a hill so that other nations would see the holiness and the goodness and the righteousness of God and be drawn to it and want to worship God. Do you see that? Do you see that? And do you see, isn't that the mission of the church as well? To be a distinct people, so not so that we can you know, hunker down and be mad at the culture around us, but so that through us, God might make himself, make himself known. So that's, that's Exodus. Let me pause there. Any, any quick one or two, like, simple questions? Anything, anything? I think I just need to catch my breath. It's got to be a question I can answer in 27 seconds or less. Anybody? Okay, track them. Okay, let's keep going. Um, ex, uh, Exodus, a couple important points. Salvation. Um, grace and law, imperative, indicative. We see that pattern. And then we see, guys, we see God's patience with his people. Don't fall into this trap that the Old Testament is about a grumpy God. God is incredibly patient in the Old Testament. In fact, like, if you only read the New Testament, the New Testament has some narrative in it, um, and, you know, that gives us kind of a story of God's, but the New Testament, especially in Paul's epistles, are filled with just statements. Whereas the Old Testament is kind of like the long-form explanation of it. And so like in, 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 sec, in, like in is it 2 Peter chapter 3 where um, Peter says, God is, not, God is slow, he's not slack concerning his promise, and he's patient with you. Well, you can learn that truth just from reading 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is patient. But oh, if you take that little, that little bullet point, if you take that little tweet, that, that little tweet, and then you watch the two-hour-long film, you know, of the Old Testament story of God being patient, won't that, like, make that truth come more alive to you? So you see that God is patient in the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, Leviticus. Now, this is where you drop off on your Bible reading plan, very likely, right? Okay, I understand. I understand. Um, let me also just one more time commend the Bible, jointhebibleproject.com video. Their, their video on Leviticus is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's how good it is. It is awesome. Um, but Leviticus is admittedly a very difficult book to plod through, Okay. So what is Leviticus about? Leviticus is about, um, Leviticus happens, right? Leviticus is, is an exodus, or this is Mount, Mount Sinai is the law right here. Leviticus is happening. It's about a, it's a, it, it's about a month's time, right? It's, it's all just more law giving, but it's a specific type of law. Moses is giving laws uh, that are about, I won't take, I won't write all those outline. You see the outline there. There, there are really three different things going on in Leviticus. There are laws about ritual offerings and sacrifices, kind of in a one-on-one thing. Like, you know, I, I accidentally killed 
your cow or something, and um, now this is kind of what I have to do to amend for and how I can say I'm sorry to other people. There's ways that I personally can sort of give thanks to God. So there's sort of ritual offerings and sacrifices, chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 through 10 establish the priesthood. In fact, that's what Leviticus is. Levi is one of the sons um, of the patriarchs in um, Genesis, and he becomes his tribe, the tribe that comes from Levi, Levi becomes the priestly tribe. So that's where this Leviticus comes from. And uh, this is the establishment of the, the, the duties of the priesthood to be the go-between between God and the people. Now, who is that imaging, right? It's not the Pope. Who's that imaging? Jesus, right? Right? So you see this, you see again, God painting a picture of this offspring, this promised one to come, who will be the true and better priest. Then in uh, chapters 11 through 15, a holiness code, really trudging through that. I mean, there's lots about bodily discharges and stuff. I mean, just, you know, just really kind of graphic reading in a lot of ways. But what's happening there is God is doing, uh, uh, is being very specific about sacrifices, about the duties of the priests, and about the holiness or the cleanliness of the people. And what he's saying is he's establishing his holiness and his people's lack of holiness and their need for holiness to come into his presence. And then at the middle of the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 16 and 17, really two of the most important chapters of the Old Testament, these are two chapters you probably should read in, the Old, in Leviticus, like thoroughly, read, read all of Leviticus, but these are like ones that you should really like, like, like buckle down on, is it's the Day of Atonement. It's this one day where the priest is to offer to put his hands on a scapegoat um, and to offer sins yearly for the people, right? And so they, they would take a goat, a scapegoat, and the priest would lay his hands on the goat, and then they would take this scapegoat, and they would take this goat away, like go away into the wilderness, like this goat is carrying. So symbolically, they're transferring their sins to this goat. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat, right? It's the scapegoat. It goes away, escape, get away, take the sins away. And then they would take another um, unblemished lamb, and they would, they, would, they would kill that animal as a sacrifice to make atonement. And this word atonement, which is maybe just one of these theological words that we you know, kind of just accept, it's an old English word that speaks about what happens in the gospel. At atonement, spell it, atonement, it is the at one moment. It's the moment when a holy God and a sinful people are reconciled. The at one moment. There, isn't that a beautiful word? Kind of just kind of give you a rich, a rich understanding of even the just the old, the old form of that word. The at one moment when the holy God, His wrath, His holiness, is appeased by the blood sacrifice. Now, of course. We know that this is temporary, right? Because they have to do it year after year after year, right? So it is insufficient. But what is it? What's coming, right? The true and better sacrifice. So when you read through Leviticus, 
read through Leviticus with an understanding that all of this is God painting a picture of the redemption that is to come, right? So flip to Hebrews chapter 10. And, we, and you should read, when you read, when you're plot, plotting through Leviticus to sort of pump up, to give you a little energy drink to your Leviticus reading, when you're reading Leviticus, read it alongside of Hebrews and let, let, it, let, let it come to life, right? So Hebrews, in large part, is about, it's interpreting what Le- Leviticus is all about. So Leviticus is about these sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, and the role of the priest. But these priests are imperfect and have to atone for their own sin, and these sacrifices are insufficient, and they have to be offered yearly. Well, one of the big points of Hebrews is is that we have a great high priest who does not need to atone for his own sin, but once and for all has atoned for all sin. Because he's holy, and because his blood is far more holy than the blood of bulls and goats and birds, once and for all Jesus atones for sin. So in Hebrews 10, um, he says in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come. That's a wonderful Um, summary of much of the Old Testament. The law is a shadow of good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But then we drop down to um, uh, verse, let's drop down to verse 9. It says, he does away with the first in order to establish the second, meaning the covenant, verse 10, and by, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's the true and better sacrifice, and he's the true and better priest. See, Jesus embodies all of this together in one. And then verse 14, I think one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible uh, is so beautiful. It explains so much to me. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus' work on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that a beautiful? First of all, that's grammatically incorrect unless you, you're the Holy Spirit who's writing that. So he's saying that Jesus has perfected past tense. Romans 8, greatest chapter in the Bible, Paul says we are already glorified. How's that? I still feel pretty unglorified right now. But when God sees us in Christ, we are already confined. It's it's certain. It's certain. He has has perfected past tense for all time. It's done, past, present, future, those who are being sanctified. Do Do you see the grammatical error? except it's the Holy Spirit, so it's beautifully right. It's happened, it's done, and it's still happening. So that verse is saying we are in the process of becoming who we already are in Christ. Oh, man, if you're bored right now because you're like, oh, Old Testament, I'm just coming out of obligation just to get my little brownie points because it's a Wednesday night. Man, if you are a young guy right now and you are trusting in Jesus, you need to lean into that verse because that is saying your fight against sin right now, Jesus has perfected you, so lean into what is already true in your life. Unplug the computer, throw away the iPod, get rid of that thing, and be who you already are in Christ, right? Let the certain riptide of God's transforming grace Pull you deeper into what is true of you, right? Oh, that'll preach. That'll preach. All right, okay, enough of that. Let's keep going. 
So Leviticus. So see, we just got fired up in the middle of Leviticus. Selah. All right. So let's go to numbers, all right? So wait, let me, did I miss anything? Okay, so there's a couple of just important points about Leviticus here at the bottom of the page. Man, God's people must be holy to enter his presence, right? Man, right? So, so, so God is serious about this law. Why? Not because God is a grumpy legalist, but because God has bigger things in store for his people back to Genesis 12 to be the people that he makes holy so that through them they might be a display to the nations, right? And by the way, holiness is not mutually exclusive with our joy, and that's a fabric that runs all the way through the Old Testament. Setting, obeying God in every way, sexually, financially, in every part of your life, where we lie to ourselves and our culture lies to us and said, if you will do it according to your means, you'll be happier. God's way is antiquated. It always leads to despair. But God's holiness for his people in the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament, always leads to joy. Because he's wanting his people to be a display to the nation. So God's people must be holy to enter his presence. The problem is they can't, they're unable, they are unclean, and so they need a go-between. They need a priest, and they need a sacrifice, a substitute. And they need to be God to be patient with them. And we see that priest, and we see that sacrifice in Leviticus, and it's a shadow of the reality to come, who is Jesus, right? Okay, let's keep going to Numbers. Then Numbers. Man, Numbers is a trip. Numbers is really just one big like um, field problem for your army. It's like one big camping trip. Right? It's just three, three field exercises, basically, is what it is, right? So you have Numbers, really, one through ten. Pe- that people are still, pe- we're, we're at Numbers now. People are still um, in, uh, in, at Sinai. So all of Leviticus is happening right here. And the first 10 chapters of Numbers, we're still at Sinai, okay? So God has rescued his people. He's brought them to Sinai. He's given them his law, this mountain. He's formed his people. Okay, but remember what he promised them back in Genesis 12? He said, I'm going to give you a land. And so now, after the first 10 chapters of of Numbers, chapters 1 through 10 is just more, you know, instruction uh, at Sinai, at the base of the mountain there. And God says, okay, we're going to start, we're going to start moving to get you to where I promised that you would be. Remember, he, he called them to the promised land through their rebellion. They found themselves in Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt. He gives a law, and now he's going to start bringing them back to the promised land, Okay. And all of this is kind of, a, isn't this all a picture of the Christian life, right? God, is, God saves us to take us to a place of rest, right? Of maturity, of joy, of our own promised land in Christ, right? Christ is ultimately the promised land. So he's taking his people back. So Numbers is basically just three scenes where they're in the wilderness in Sinai, they're in the wilderness of Paran, in Paran, and they're in the wilderness of Moab. Now there's lots of really 
interesting and amazing stories that go on in Numbers. We could take forever to go through them. We won't. But basically, that's the breakdown of Numbers. And then there's just two um, little portions there where they travel. One little thing that I think is just incredible that just is an indictment on God's people, both in the Old Testament and us. It was really convicting to read this. I'm sure you know the story. Go to Numbers chapter 13, okay? So God has rescued his people, and he has given them his law. And oh, by the way, he's feeding them birds and bread from heaven, right? It's just dropping, he's just being gracious to them. And this is what he's, he's, okay, he's getting ready to move them, you know, further into the promised land. And, and Moses sends out 12 spies. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back with a good report. Ten of them are sorry jokers, and they, they come back with a bad report. So in verse 27 of Numbers chapter 13, and they told him, the ten spies, the ten sorry jokers, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, these big people. We saw the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. God had, let's, God had miraculously rescued his people from a much greater empire. And now they're saying, ah, you know, it really looks good, but there's some big dudes over there, man. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. <laughs> he, he's still, he, God's on our side, right? Then the, men, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it, of, in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. What's going on here? All people were bad. Yes, okay, thank you, Jerry. But, uh, which may or may not be true, depending on your t- you, who you are. But, God's people are completely forgetting God's goodness to them, right? And then what do the people do? In Numbers 14, verse 1. Then the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, listen to this. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, woe's me, right? Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Go back to captivity. Now, before we bust on the Israelites too much, now aren't we the same way, right? woes me. Isn't it amazing how a a current trial can crowd out the beautiful grace of God in our lives? And that's what's happening in Numbers. And they travel, they go, God judges them. He promises this generation that cried like um, this in Numbers 14. He says, you're not going to make it into the promised land. Basically, the rest of Numbers is this incredible story about God taking them to, to 
through two different you know, plains and deserts, incredible journeys. At the end of Numbers, we see this incredible sovereignty of God where they come to the plains of Moab, and there's this king of Moab there. Moab actually asks one of his prophets, this guy named Balaam, to prophesy against God's people, and Balaam is this pagan prophet who God works in him, and, and Balaam's trying to curse God's people, but God won't let him do anything but speak blessings. So God is just, he's just playing with people like they're a chess game in his sovereign plan, right? God is in control. And Numbers ends with uh, God's people at the edge of the promised land. And the old generation dies, and a new generation comes on the scene. And then we get to Deuteronomy, and we're just, we're going to be real short with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really basically just three very long sermons. Thank you, Moses, for that wonderful example of long sermons. And Deuteronomy is a word that just means, by the way, numbers, the the Hebrew numbers in English means numbers, but the Hebrew word for numbers is um, in the wilderness. It's kind of the journey of the wilderness. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy is um, a Greek word for no, no meaning law, and do meaning uh, second or twice to. So it's the second giving of the law. So Deuteronomy is Moses giving the law. Uh, Moses is at the end of his life. And he is about to die there on the edge of the promised land. And Moses is in the form of three sermons, basically, three long sermons, giving the law again to a new generation that is going to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. So it's the second giving of the law via three sermons where he's applying it to this generation. And then he's really, he's, he's issuing uh, curses and blessings for disobedience and obedience and um, then really his last sermon is just this wonderful long sermon about really choose life or choose death. I set before you life or death. Choose life, Moses is saying. And that is the end. Moses dies, and that's the end of the Pentateuch. And then where we'll pick up next week is with Joshua, where God raises up a leader, Joshua. And with Joshua, God miraculously again crosses his people over the Jordan River into the promised land. What's significant here, I didn't mention the numbers by the way, when God sets his people out from Sinai to the promised land, it was about a 12-day journey. A 12-day journey. You know how long it took them? 40 years. (laughs) What's that a picture of? each of our own sanctification, isn't it? We, we go around our elbow to get to our nose, right? Because we are crooked, jacked up, confused, disobedient, rebellious people. And from here to here was about 200 miles. Should have been 12 days. Took them 40 Years. <laughs> Selah. Right? I mean, think about that. Isn't, that. isn't that strangely encouraging? 
Isn't that strangely encouraging? And yet, God does not give up on his people. It's going to get worse when we get into Kings. God does not give up on his people. Genesis is about creation, fall, and the beginning of redemption through Abraham. Exodus is about rescue and the law to form a holy people. Leviticus is like zooming in on the seriousness of God's holiness. Numbers is about God's people rejecting his call to holiness and making a straight line, an incredibly crooked one, through our broken sanctification. And Deuteronomy is God coming again, not crushing his people who deserve death, but graciously giving them the law again. And as we'll see then in Joshua, causing them to cross over into the promised land despite themselves, not because of them. Praise God. So a couple major themes. We don't have time to get into this. Just we'll, Maybe we'll pick up on this. Covenant people. Who are the covenant people of God? I really want to spend some time with you guys, and we'll do that in the next couple weeks at some point, talking about how Christians should think about the nation of Israel and its relationship to the church. It's a much more nuanced um, I, think it's, I, think, I don't think it's hard to understand, but I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians, don't quite understand well the relationship between Old Testament Israel and the church. Um, certainly there's some, some differences, but I think there's a lot of similarity there that we need to think a little bit more deeply about. We'll spend some time in the coming weeks talking about it. We see, the law, we see sin and judgment. And again, I want, to, I want you guys to, I want you to, God judges sin, but God, sin has not surprised God. God has planned in some beautiful way. We see uh, grace and law. I wanted to, and we'll spend some time before we end this six-week study, talking about the applicability of the Old Testament. We've done a little bit of that on Sunday mornings when we go through the Sermon on the Mount. But all of these Old Testament laws, all of these really, I mean, you add up Exodus, um, all the laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you, of course, have the Ten Commandments, but then you have around 600 other commands and regulations. The big question is what? Um, what applicability do they have to the Christian? I think, well, the short answer, and we'll spend more time on this in the coming weeks, is that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. We could never fulfill the law. We could never live up to God's standard. Jesus has become the promised one who fulfills the law for us. So he's not only the sacrifice that the law demands as a punishment, he's the obedience that the law calls for, and his obedience in the gospel is imputed to us, but that doesn't mean that we are free from all of the commands. Now the law, which was exterior, has become an interior law, and that's why um, and it's a, it's, it, it, we need to take more time to trace it out, but that's why some of the dietary, all the dietary laws and things like that don't apply to the Christian anymore, but all of the moral issues of the law, our sexual ethic and all of that is picked up again in the New Testament, and that's why it still applies to Christians, and we'll spend some time talking about that. We see a God who's holy and who sanctifies his people, and then we see a God. I want you to see this. I want you to see the sovereign hand of God through human history that he has planned for redemption, he brings it about, and he has a mission and a purpose for his people. And we, if, if nothing else, in Genesis through Deuteronomy, I want us to see God sovereignly bringing his people where he wants to bring them, working in and through their obedience and disobedience to bring about his gracious good plan. And that should give us encouragement as we are part of a generation in America that just seems to be rapidly slipping into more and more it's debauchery. 
And God is in control, and he's gracious, and he's good, and he will fulfill his purposes. Any questions before we pray and wrap up? I know it's been a big fire hose, little mouth. 70 miles an hour, no. All right, so go home and read Leviticus and get excited and um, have Hebrews chapter 10 with you and praise God that we don't have to offer bulls and goats because Jesus has once and for all, really when you read Leviticus, read it, read it quickly, but read it with a spirit of worship that we have a true and better sacrifice, right? And rejoice in the storyline of the Old Testament. And go to the Bible, join the join the BibleProject.com and be really blessed by the good work of these brothers that have put together these good resources for us. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you for these uh, brothers and sisters. Thank you just for a, a wonderful time in your word where we can see your sovereign hand, where you, Lord, um, you are superintending human history for the maximum display of your glory. Now, we admittedly oftentimes have a very difficult time seeing how you are doing that. And we can very often be like this weak generation in the wilderness in Numbers 14. And we confess that we often, in our heart of hearts, just, we just want to sit down and pout. And we want to go back to Egypt. I pray that as we even go through this story very briefly, that you would cause us to be encouraged and emboldened to know that you have guaranteed that you will bring your people safely home. And even though there are still giants in the land, that we must slay. We know it's not ultimately our strength that we fight them, and it is because our true and better warrior king Jesus has slayed the giants for us, so we can in him, empowered by your spirit, fight, and we can fight with a certain steadfast promise that you will bring your people safely home. So Lord, let us be emboldened by the beautiful story of grace of the Old Testament. And let us go into our lives and into our sanctification with our hands up, swinging for the glory of God. I pray all of this for my friends. Give us a a safe trip home and, and and a productive week and bring us back into your house on Sunday. I pray all of this for my friends in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. See you Sunday.